0: Gospel of John, chapter twelve, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, would you please make use of the pew Bibles there in front of you? John chapter twelve. I'm going to begin reading in verse twenty. So let's now hear the word of God written. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, this is a, a difficult word to hear because we are pulled in every direction by sin and the things that are in this world. We so easily cling to our lives in this world instead of to Jesus. And this text meets every one of us here with that problem that we face day in and day out, and I pray that You would use it this morning to help us to take up our cross daily and die to the things of this world that we might gain all that You are for us in Christ. Do this by sending Your Spirit to convict us of sin and bring much clarity where I cannot And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have three connections this morning to make in this passage, and one overarching goal. First, I want us to connect the Greeks wanting to see Jesus with Jesus' response about His glorification through death. Then I want us to connect Jesus' glorification through death with the way you and I spend our lives in this present world. And then lastly, I want us to connect the way you and I spend our lives in this world with God's enduring promises. And all of those connections, I pray, will then serve this one overarching goal, that we, as Redeemer Church, we would become a people who hate our lives in this world because of all that we gain in Jesus Christ. That's the goal, that you and I would live in such a way that the world witnesses through us the infinite value of Jesus over the value of our hobbies and our money and our gadgets and our comforts and even our own lives In this world, I had a brother ask me when I was in college a soul searching question. He just asked me, Is what you're living for, Brett, worth dying for? And that's the question I asked you this morning. Is what you're living for worth dying for? This passage tells us that Jesus alone is truly worth dying for, and therefore he's the one we should live for at all costs to ourselves in this world. So let's look at the passage together, some of these connections I mentioned. First of all, let's connect the Greeks wanting to see Jesus and Jesus' response about his hour of glorification. Read it with me, beginning in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, we're still at the Passover feast of the Jews here, Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, meaning he could likely speak their language. And they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is really big. The entire Gospel of John hinges on chapter 12. This is the hour we've been waiting for all along as we've made our trek through John's Gospel. Right from the very beginning, Jesus tells His own mother, when she asks Him to perform a miracle in Cana, My hour has not yet come. Then later he tells the woman at the well in chapter 4 that his hour is still coming. And then a bit later in chapter 7 and again in chapter 8, John tells us the Jews were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And now some Greeks show up wanting to see Jesus and Jesus says the hour has come. The hour for what? The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. We encounter this language of glorification quite a bit in John's gospel, and we'll spend quite a bit of time on it next week. But usually one of two things are being emphasized when we see talk of Jesus being glorified. Either Jesus' glory is being put on display through His obedient sufferings and death on the cross, so His own worth, His own glory being displayed through His death on the cross, or... Jesus is reclothed with glory upon returning to his Father in heaven. He left glory, humbled himself, became a man. Once he dies and rises from that, he'll be reclothed with glory upon returning to his Father. But there are some occasions in John's Gospel when you can't hardly separate the two aspects of Jesus' glorification, even though one might be receiving the greater emphasis. This is what we encounter here in Jesus' words. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's essentially giving a summary statement of what the next ten chapters will entail. The next ten chapters will entail the period of time when the glory of God will shine at its brightest through Jesus' death, resurrection, and and ascension. We've just been getting glimpses of Jesus' glory, of God's glory revealed in Jesus as He's been performing these miracles. We're coming to an hour in which the glory of God will be manifest in full. In full and it's through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension that we see it. The specified hour is one that includes Jesus being glorified back to the Father but only first in and through his death on the cross. Meaning the cross is fundamental to seeing the glory of God. The cross of Jesus is fundamental to seeing the glory of God in Jesus. That's why Jesus brings up His death again in verse 24 after speaking about His glorification. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about His own death in relation to the glorification. The time has arrived for the the, the full range of God's perfections the perfections of His majestic otherness and holiness, it's time for them to be displayed in Jesus' death for sinners. So, for example, the cross is where the glory of God's holiness will shine most brilliantly in that the cross proves God alone is worthy of all of our adoration. The cross is where the glory of God's justice against rebels speaks most loudly in that it required the death of His eternal Son in their place. The cross is where the glory of God's wrath will be displayed most supremely in that Jesus Christ absorbed in three hours the wrath which sinners must endure for an eternity. It's where the glory of God's grace toward undeserving people sings most pleasantly because we see in the cross every provision for our salvation accomplished at once. It's where the glory of God's love is manifested most tangibly in that He did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. Jesus' glorification first through the cross is fundamental to seeing the glory of God. So what's the connection then between the Greeks wanting to see Jesus and Jesus declaring His hour to be glorified has arrived? Why does John, in the midst of the Passover feast, where thousands and thousands of Jews are gathered, why does he zero in on a handful of Greeks who are interested in seeing Jesus? And then bring that together with the tip-off for Jesus' time to be glorified. If we've learned anything about Jesus to this point, it's that he sees what we cannot see on our own, but he speaks about what we must see if we are to have a relationship with him. He knows the deeper significance of this occasion and wants everybody seeing it. The point is that if the world, both Jew and Gentile alike, all these Jewish crowds around him, now these Greeks coming. If the world as a whole is to see Jesus rightly, then they must see Jesus' glory through his death on the cross. The Greeks want to see Jesus in person. But Jesus is saying that the only true way for the world to see him is through his mission to save the world. Through his mission to die for sins and rise again from the dead. The only way we see Jesus rightly is when we behold the glory of God's salvation revealed through his death. No Jew, no Greek, Nor any person in this room is saved apart from embracing the death of Jesus Christ. Apart from embracing the way God glorified His Son through the cross. If we are to come and see Jesus rightly, or even more importantly, if Jesus is to come to us and entrust Himself to us, then we must embrace His death on the cross and keep worshiping God in light of what Jesus' death reveals about God And reveals about us. Jesus' death means that God is infinitely holy. And we are desperately guilty before him in sin without the ability to provide a sufficient sacrifice. Jesus' death also means that God is loving towards sinners. And that he chose to provide that sufficient sacrifice by sending his own son to die in our place. God chose to save the world by sending His Son to die for the world. And to reject Jesus' death is to reject God altogether. It is to reject that God is glorious and it is to reject that His way of salvation is sufficient. We see Jesus rightly and the world sees Jesus rightly insofar as we behold His glory through the cross. In so far as we see that His his power was working through His passion. That His glory was shining through Golgotha. That His salvation was accomplished through His sacrifice. That His kingdom was only to be built through the nails in His hands. And that His honor was excelling through His humility which means we ought to lift up the cross often in our care for one another and in our care for the lost world around us. We don't see Jesus, folks, and the world will not see Jesus unless we're talking about His cross. There's a reason Paul would say things like, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When the word of the cross goes forth, people see the glory of God shining in His Son for sinners. So don't shy away from the cross in your interactions with one another or in your interactions with the world. Make a beeline for the cross so that people see Jesus properly. If the cross is missing from our conversations or our evangelism efforts or our care for one another, then so is Jesus Christ. He is seen for who he truly is, wherever the cross is raised up and explained and applied to the soul. Second, look now at the the connection between Jesus' death and the way we should live in this world. Jesus mentions his own death in verse 24. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's basically saying that his death is necessary to the producing of fruit. If he doesn't willingly die, if he isn't buried in the earth like a seed, then he just remains alone. A lone seed in the bag. But if he dies... And we know he did die, and God vindicated him three days later. If he dies, then God would bring forth much fruit. What is the fruit he's talking about? What is the fruit of Jesus' death? What does his death produce? I think the answer is found in verse 25. But before we read verse 25, let me just refresh our memory about the world in John's Gospel. The world. We see in verse 25, hating your life in this world. The world in John's Gospel normally refers to everybody born in Adam. It's it's the whole human race. And that world, by nature, is characterized by moral darkness and spiritual corruption and idolatry. And then in chapter 12, verse 31, we're even told that the world has has a ruler and and it's an evil realm that's ruled by the devil himself. And then one last thing about the world is that it's plagued by death. Not simply physical death, but also eternal death and separation from fellowship with God because of our sin. So the world in John's Gospel is usually not referring to the beauty and the goodness of God's original created order, it's talking about the whole system of rebellion against God. That's why we see in John 3.16, God had to love that kind of world. God loved that kind of world. A world that's bent against Him. It's the same world that God commands us not to love. Love. In chapter 1 of chapter 2 of 1 John, verses 15 to 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father but is from the world the world is passing away but the one who does the will of the father remains forever that's the world we should keep in mind when reading John's gospel it's the world system opposed to Jesus with all its pride and its lusts and its idolatry and its self worship now read with me verse 25 Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world is in this world of sin, death, and the devil will keep it for eternal life. Jesus has shifted from talking about his own death in verse 24 to talking about the implications his death has for all his disciples in verse 25. The implication of Jesus' death is this. Hate your life in this world, and as a result, you'll keep it for eternal life. Here's what I think is going on. Jesus' death produces people who are freed from bondage to this present world so that they might spend their lives for Jesus. Jesus' death produces people who are freed from bondage to this present world so that they might spend their lives for Jesus. When God loved the world and sent His Son into that evil world, His Son was not in bondage, did not become in bondage to that world. The same is true for all of those he died and rose again for. That's the fruit Jesus' death produces. The fruit is a people so freed from their sin and so freed from the love of this world that they're willing to risk everything for the sake of life with Jesus. In other words, life isn't bound up with all the toys and accolades and comforts this world offers. Life is bound up with living for Jesus and doing what he's called you to do. Namely, hating your life in this world to follow him on the Calvary road. Taking up your cross daily and dying to your love of this world to have him. That doesn't mean you become a curmudgeon. ...and despise the good gifts God gives in this world... ...it means that we learn to enjoy those gifts rightly. We enjoy them for Christ's sake. We do not enjoy them in Christ's place. The life we hate in this world... ...is the life that that elevates this world's stuff... ...and desires to places that lead our affections away from Jesus that lead our allegiance away from Jesus. The life we must despise is the life of the sinful flesh, the life of self-interest and idolatry, the life of the old man that says, I can find in this world something better than Jesus' glory. I can find something more valuable than Jesus' is worth, something more satisfying than Jesus' life. Something more helpful than Jesus' strength. Something more right than Jesus' justice. Something more beneficial than Jesus' wisdom. Something more intimate than Jesus' presence. Something more lasting than Jesus' kingdom. If that's the life we choose to save, the life of the old man, we will lose it in the end and we will suffer eternal condemnation for it. We won't get eternal life if we choose to love this Present evil world that's passing away over Jesus. If but if Jesus is our true treasure, then we will gain eternal life, and part of that eternal life is freedom from sin and freedom from this world's grip on our souls. Our lives will be wholly given over to His priorities instead of the world's priorities given over to his kingdom instead of Satan's kingdom, given over to the humility of his cross instead of vying for people's praise at the expense of others, given over to his righteousness instead of to our resumes. Jesus' death produces people who spend their lives for him. And Jesus calls that people the church of God. Every one of us who say Jesus is Lord have been freed from the power of sin and the grip of the world to live for Jesus and not for ourselves. One more connection. I want us to connect the way you and I spend our lives in this world with God's enduring promises. So here's what we have so far. We see Jesus rightly when we see his glory in the cross. And then part of that glory in of the cross is, is that Jesus liberates us from the world's sway to serve Jesus at all costs to ourselves. And now we're going to see that serving Jesus at all costs to ourselves is really no sacrifice at all. Especially when you compare it to what we gain in Jesus His promises are better than life in this world. It may cost us everything, our jobs maybe, our money, our reputation, our family, our friends, but it is so worth following Jesus because of all that we gain in Him. We get the Spirit's life, we get the Son's presence, and we get the Father's reward, all of which are infinitely better than life in this world. I want you to see these promises with me in order. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's the Holy Spirit's life. The Spirit's life is eternal life. We've already seen this in chapter 4, verse 14, and in chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. It's the Spirit of Christ who gives eternal life. The Spirit takes the life of Jesus Christ and His coming kingdom, and it mediates that life to us, that unending, all-satisfying life, it mediates that life to our innermost being when we hate our lives in this world. That's absolutely amazing. You lay down your pride, you say no to sinful sex and the love of money and laziness and cushy American comforts for what, 80 years? To live for Jesus. And God gives you an eternity of Himself starting now by the Spirit taking up residence inside you. Why settle for anything in this world when you can have God forever? You can't top the Spirit's life with any experience in this world, nothing in this world can give you unending, all-satisfying life in the very presence of God like the Spirit gives to the one who follows Jesus. No gadget, no praise, no pornographic image, no person, no cash, no drug, no vacation compares with what we gain by having the Holy Spirit dwell inside of us and give us eternal life. Forever. And then in verse 26, we see the promise of the Son's presence. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Following Jesus isn't an easy task. Not only does it mean hating your life in this world, that's the negative. It means serving Jesus by following the way of the cross. That's the positive. As Christians, we don't hate our lives in this world as an end in itself but to help us pursue others with the same selfless service and self-sacrificial love so characteristic of our Savior. That's really hard and it's really risky. But the risk seems like nothing when we compare it to what we gain, the very presence of Jesus. Look how he goes on. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. He's referring to our future union with Jesus, that wonderful day when we see him face to face in all his glory. And he's referring to our present union with Jesus. Where I am, my servant will be also, period, starting now and forever. His point is that no matter what may come to us as a result of following Jesus... Even if it's something as severe as martyrdom for the sake of the gospel, He is present with us. And nothing in this world can take Him away from us or us away from Him. And what more could we ask for than to be with Jesus? Even if being with Jesus brings us into circumstances that cause us to suffer What more could we ask for than being with Jesus? He called himself the Son of Man again in verse 24. Do you know who that is? Daniel 7, 13 and 14 tells us who that is. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Straight from the mouth of God. Now read verse 26. And where I am. As the Son of Man, where I am, there will my servant be also. Jesus is heaven's only treasure in eternal joy. The sovereign king of the universe, the one before whom Revelation says myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels prostrate themselves before him in adoration and praise. The only savior who spilled his blood for us and washed us clean that we might reign forever with him in his resurrection life. Is there a higher gift or a more glorious person than you have when you have the son of man? Well, no, no. There's even more than the Spirit's life and the Son's presence. If we follow Jesus, we also gain the Father's reward. Look at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In other words, if you follow the way of Jesus' cross, then we, like Him, will gain the Father's glory and honor. Not the glory and honor that makes Him out to be God, but the glory and honor He chooses to share with us in Jesus Christ. He will be pleased to reward us, not because we ultimately deserve it, but because His Son deserves it. And by God's grace, He makes His disciples to be like His Son. God delights in honoring whatever honors His Son. And by God's grace, He makes us fit for the reward before giving us the reward. He's delighted to reward those who look and live and love like Jesus. And He enables us to do that. And His reward is forever. It's not an honor that passes away with this world like the praise of men will pass away or the possessions of this world will pass away. The Father's honor remains forever because He remains forever. And the Son in whom He delights remains forever. And the Spirit who will one day conform us fully to Christ's image, He too remains forever. So if we hate our lives in this world and follow Jesus, the Spirit's life, the Son's presence, and the Father's reward are all ours. And those promises far outweigh anything that this world could ever offer. So what do all these connections mean for us? It means that you and I must live in such a way that the world witnesses that Jesus is worth everything to us. He's even worth our very lives. Gary quoted this earlier, but the missionary Jim Elliott, who laid down his life for the sake of the gospel, he got it right when he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So how about you? Are you choosing to find life in something other than Jesus? In something in this present world that's passing away? You might be able to tell where you're finding life when you step back and evaluate what you couldn't live without. What you couldn't live without. If you said to yourself, I couldn't live without blank, what would you put in that blank? Could you put... Christ and Him alone? Or would you have to put Christ and something else? You might also be able to tell where you're finding life when you ask yourself, maybe, what excites you more than Jesus? Now, do you moan when you come to His Word and sit at His Word? Or just not excited by what you read, but you hear the Rangers winning and you're like, maybe. What excites you in this world in comparison to your excitement over Jesus? Where are you finding your life What in your soul is competing with the worth of Jesus? What in this world is distracting you from undivided devotion to the Lord? Is there something you need to die to in order to see the glory of Jesus more fully? And what is that? Are there things about this world that are so attractive to your soul that... They prevent you from giving up something you know you're supposed to give up for Jesus' sake. He's made it clear, but you just, mm, I do not want to let go of this. Do you have some hidden desire for wealth deceiving you about the riches that are present already in Jesus? Is there some subtle need for the approval of others undermining your boldness in reaching out to others with the gospel? Do you have some secret sin paralyzing your growth in Christ's likeness and hindering your ability to love others with zeal? I want to challenge you to take out a pen right now. Use your iPad. Whatever you have. I want you to write down right now just one thing God is calling you to die for. To die to for the sake of Christ. Write it down. Whatever may have leaped into your mind when I was asking those questions. It doesn't have to be huge. It can be small. A small sacrifice or a great one. The Lord is working in us all in different ways according to His wisdom and His timing. Whatever it is, though, write it down and then I want you to bring it with you to care group this week. Bring it with you to care group this week and spend some time with at least one person praying over it and preaching the glories of Christ in light of what you shared. Setting that thing that you need to die to up next to the glory of Jesus Christ and His promises. And you just minister to one another. Help one another. Pray for one another. I wrote mine down this morning. Mine is dying to the pride that says I can do great things for God without asking Him, spending time with Him, or leaning upon His grace in prayer. Prayer. The discipline of Prayer. I need to die to self-sufficiency and give my agenda, give up my agenda to commune more often with God in prayer over his agenda in Christ. So discuss these things further in care group this week. Then as we continue walking together as a church, let's cultivate affections for Jesus over the stuff of this world. The Christian life is a life of learning to hate everything that's in rebellion against God and His kingdom. But that's not the end of the Christian life. The Christian life is also about learning to love everything God loves and treasure everything God treasures in, and, and learning to, 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 to be thrilled with all that God is for us in Jesus and all that God has done to conquer the rebel powers within us and outside of us. So cultivate affections for Jesus by reading the word regularly, memorizing scripture regularly, listening to music that honors Christ and is clear about the cross and his resurrection, sending sending each other messages about what's wonderful about Jesus, reminding each other of the promises we just talked about, preaching the promises of life in Christ to yourself. Growing in our affection for Jesus is how any of us will come to the place of wanting to sacrifice our life for Him, of wanting to give everything to see Him praise. I'll give you an example of preaching the gospel to myself a few years ago when I first became a pastor here, and I was a wreck inside. Not because of you, because of me. I had been welding since I was about 15 years old. And I did that through high school, college, and seminary to help support myself through school. And I remember in my first few months of being a pastor here in and just dealing with the, the weight and the burden of pastoral ministry, I remember stopping my Jeep on the street outside my house because a welding truck drove by the other way, and I was looking at it in the mirror like, that looks really great. There's nothing inherently, there's nothing wrong with welding. I love the fact that there are so many Christian welders. What was evil about that moment is that I wanted the comforts. I wanted the escape of the welding shop instead of laying my life down for others, which is what I was on my way to do in meeting with people. I wanted the comforts of this world. I wanted, uh, you know, the, the grass looked greener over there all of a sudden. Metal doesn't argue with you. You don't argue with me either. You guys are, are really great. I love this congregation. <laughs> Everything in me, though, is seeing greener grass over there. It looks easy. I know how to do it. I don't know how to do pastoral ministry. I'm learning. So it looks really comfortable. And I was reading through Matthew's gospel, actually, at the time. And this text was n- not but days old in my mind, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Put the car in drive. I want Jesus more than anything else. I don't want welding if it means I lose Jesus. I don't want the comforts of this world if it means I lose Jesus. The comforts of this life paled in comparison to Jesus when I remembered the truth and preached it to myself. So cultivate affections for Jesus over the idols and over the comforts of this world. And as affection for Jesus grows, consider that in the same way Jesus' life bore fruit, only at great cost to himself... The same will be true for those who follow him. The servant is not greater than his master. And that is what we are to Jesus. We are servants. Our lives will only bear fruit at great costs to ourselves. I've spoken with quite a number of you. Actually, this is, These are all really recent. A number of you who genuinely long for God to do really great and awesome things through Redeemer Church. You long for the kingdom to come, not just in talk, but in power. You long for the Lord to add to our number daily those who are being saved. You long for God to shake this place and bring about more repentance and more faith. You long for, and I quote, for God to blow the roof off this joint. You long to see our people ministering the gospel to each other in very specific ways. You long for God to stir about revival in surrounding churches in the Metroplex. You don't know how encouraged I am to hear those longings and these prayers of yours. But we must remember that none of this will happen apart from great cost to ourselves. We can't want these things apart from dying to self. In the spread of the gospel, God has chosen the way of the cross for all His disciples. Not just those who are paid to do this. Not just those who are in leadership positions. Not just those who are teaching Sunday school. He's caught us all to this. So as you long and pray for God to move, consider what it's going to cost you in the immediate and long-term future as you minister alongside one another. Will it mean that you downsize your house in order to give more? Will it mean that you keep your house and open it up more regularly to serve others? Will it mean you... Move for purpose of more intentional mission instead of being isolated. How will interacting with lost people be included in your monthly calendar? What will it take for you and your care group members to strategize in, on reaching a particular street? Just start with a street. Six houses on this street. All of them want to hear the gospel in one month. What will it take for that to happen? Might it be that you give up a couple of Friday or Saturday evenings to reach others with the truth? Could it be that the family budget needs reevaluation in light of the kingdom's priorities? Perhaps there are things you should give up so that you, as a husband, can lead your family more regularly in fruitful devotions. Or so that you, as a wife, can serve your husband with willingness Or so that you as a friend might reach out more regularly to those in need? How might your own business planning better serve your neighbor and bear witness to Christ's supremacy? If you're a seminary student, might you consider taking fewer hours each semester in order to disciple others more regularly? Or maybe you need to learn to work heartily on the schoolwork you already do have instead of procrastinating so much. Or maybe you should just stay here long term to see the ministries of the church flourish. Paul, Drake, and Kristen, I'm not talking about you <laughs> right now. <I'm> just <laughs> This is Paul's last day with us, so please greet him also serving our children in the nursery never stops but we're normally lacking volunteers normally lacking volunteers perhaps the Lord is calling you to die to some self interest for a few Sundays out of the year to help bear burdens in nursery to teach our youngest children the gospel contact Nicole Bennett if that's you would you even consider spending a week's worth of vacation, of your vacation this summer, to help kids in this neighborhood learn about Jesus through something like a vacation Bible school? That's mine. <laughs> Poor girl. <clears throat> We need someone to take initiative with that. Talk to uh, to, to Wes or to Dan Hilmers if you're interested in leading that. Mission Utah is also upon us as well as Kevin and Sunday going out in three weeks to Utah for the church plant. Both of them need financial support. Let's find ways to die to the love of money. To reflect the generosity of Jesus and then let's give to that end as the offering plates are passed, even as early as today. Some of us need to sacrifice the time we give to some of our hobbies or the time we give to our Facebook or the time we give to our favorite TV series in order to devote ourselves to more prayer and fasting. Fasting for God to come with the power you long for. We could keep going, but I hope some of these examples help you see some very tangible ways your own lives could be spent in the service of Christ. Some various ways we might die to self-interest in order to serve the mission. Not everybody's sacrifice will look the same or will even have the same results we see this even in the lives of Peter and John. Peter was martyred. John lived till he was old. See it at the end of this gospel, even. So not everybody's sacrifice is going to look the same, but all of our sacrifices in this world will serve to honor the name of Christ and bring and aim to bring sinners to God through Christ. This is ultimately why we exist. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. May it be so for all of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your love. I thank You for Your grace in these words here. I thank You that the Spirit has inspired them for our eternal good. And I pray that You would do a good work in us. You would complete what You have begun. That we would continue saying no to the things of this world and yes to everything we've gained in Christ. Do this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.